Today I want to talk about the friendship of the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Um, and, you know, and when we think about Christ's heart, it's very important to see him as a friend. Amen? Amen? Yes, yes. We're like Jesus the friend, right? And Because if, if, if we can see him this way, then his heart... If he's a friend, like a real friend, then his heart becomes this constant and reliable companion in everything. Everything we do, everything we go through. Now, the idea of friendship in general was way more common in the past than it is now. We are actually in a friendship crisis right now as a culture. When it comes to uh, friendship in the purely human sense, it's, real, it's not as rich and it's not as meaningful as it used to be, say, 100 years ago, especially among men. Men right now are at an all-time low when it comes to true, deep, meaningful friendship with other dudes. In fact, men right now are suffering, suffering uh, crushing loneliness at a much greater rate than women do. We just don't let it out. In fact, uh, there was a professor at Virginia Commonwealth University. His name's Richard Godbeer. And um, he did a study of letters that were written, you know, um, early, early America, but that Letters that were written between men who were friends. And he did this study of this correspondence. And, and he found that the friendships today lack so much depth compared to the friendships that men used to have back to all the way to colonial America. So if we let this current culture that we're in to shape our view of friendship, then we not only are going to miss out on an essential part of human well-being on a basic level, but we also are going to miss out, even more importantly, on experiencing the friendship of Christ on a much deeper level. And so as I was writing this message, it, I was surprised that how emotional it Actually, it was for me as I was writing this and as I was preparing. And I was just, I, I, it was weird. It was weird as I was reading the scriptures and I was thinking about these thoughts, you know. And I, I guess probably, probably part of it was in my own life, I've, I've gone through a lot of seasons where friends have walked out of my life. Or it's been a, a struggle to have others prioritize me in relationship. Anyone else? Ever? We all have. Everyone has. So I, forgive me if I get emotional today at some times. But as I studied the friendship of Jesus, it's, I really think it was, there's a healing that's available today. It's a healing balm. And I hope this will be a healing for you. As well, and, and I hope that we can all truly place a higher value on our relationships and that we would all make greater efforts to invest 
and those we claim to love the most. And I know it seems weird maybe to hear me, Pastor Tom, the introvert, <laughs> talk about this. and Do you even care about or have a high value for friendship? I, that may seem wild, but the opposite is very true of me. I actually have a very high value for friendship. You know, growing up, I did not experience really much relational love at all from my home life. So all of my emotional connections were with my friends. All the fun, all the joy, anything that was meaningful emotionally, I got it from other people, not at home, with my friends, which made me fiercely loyal to my friends. Like, I would never, ever, never turn my back, let any friend down, never forsake them, never quit them, never walk away. Because they were, that was my source of emotional connection. And I know, I know we all experience some kind of emotional pain from our upbringing, home life. And we've all experienced hurt and betrayal and abandonment from friendships. But for me, the loss and hurt of abandonment in my friendships, in my life, they were exceptionally painful. So as I, as I prepared this message about the friendship of Jesus, it's really hit my heart in a really good way. And I just I pray that this will bring some revelation to your heart. I hope that healing will come to your heart in the places where you're hurting the most. So... I want to look at a passage uh, where Jesus talks about how his friendship was viewed actually by others. And this is in Matthew 11, verse 18. It says, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So Jesus quotes some people who were disrespectfully calling him a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That means they think he's friends with the worst kind of sinners in their culture. And it's interesting because in the Gospels, it's often Jesus' enemies who actually understand and get him best. You know, kind of like when demons recognize him as the Holy One of God. You know, Satan calls him the Son of God, right? They, they, they really got it. And even though the crowd sees Jesus as a friend of sinners in a negative way, for those of us who know we're sinners, this is a source of immense and great comfort. To be a friend to sinners in its simplest terms means that Jesus likes spending time with them. And they feel accepted. And they're at ease around him. I think about in Luke 15. Um, in Luke 15, when you read it, which we will in a, you know, a couple weeks or so, uh, Jesus is telling some parables. 
He's, tells, he's telling some parables. He tells it about the lost sheep, lost coin, and the lost son. But at the beginning of the chapter, it says this. It says in verse 1, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and he eats with them. Now these sinners, again, they're the same people who were accused of being his friends back in Matthew 11. Right? They feel so comfortable around him. Because why? Because he offers them something different. While others would keep their distance from those disgusting low lives, Jesus provided them with hopeful promises. A promise of a better life. And so Jesus is, what's he doing? He's, <clears throat> he's drawing them into his heart. He's pulling them in. I want you to think for a moment about your circle of friends. It's, it's kind of like drawing circles within circles, right? And there's a bullseye. You've got some people who are on the edge of our lives, right? And they, we know their names, but we're not close to them. Move in maybe to the, towards closer to the center. And some of us actually, we have close friends who truly understand us. Who, who is someone that we really, really enjoy being around. For a lot of people... Our spouse is our closest friend on earth. Now, for some, as you think through this diagram, you may experience maybe some mental or emotional pain. Because you may realize that you might not have a true friend in your life. Someone that you can't go to with any problem. Who in our lives do we feel safe with? I mean, really safe. Safe enough to share everything. Well, here's the good news. The Bible says that in Jesus Christ, we have a friend who always welcomes us. His friendship doesn't change based on how we are acting or behaving in the moment. Whether we're clean or messy, whether we're attractive or not, whether you know, we're fickle or faithful, his heart for us is as steady as his declaration that he accepts us. You know, most of us might admit that even with our best friends, we don't feel completely comfortable sharing everything about our lives you know we like them we love them we maybe even go on trips with them or vacation we talk well about them but some of it we don't sometimes we don't even fully open up to them though at the deepest levels of our life and sadly this is true in a lot of marriages where friends but we haven't shared our innermost selves with each other. I mean, 
We're more willing to share ourselves physically with our spouse. But, but when it comes down to that deep level of transparency, that the emotional depths that our hearts really feel, mm-mm. But imagine having a friend right at the center of your circle. Someone who won't judge you, won't raise their eyebrows, even if you share the very worst parts of yourself. You know, our, our, our human friendships, they can have limits. But what if you had a friend that there was no limits. Someone who would stick around no matter what you are going through. You know, it says in Revelation chapter 3, Christ is speaking to a group of people who were described as wretched and pitiable and poor and blind, blind, naked. And he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus wants to come into our life. Even when you feel broken. He wants to eat with you. He wants to have a meal with you. He wants to spend time with you. He wants to deepen his connection with you. You know... When you're with a good friend, sometimes you just don't even need to talk. You can just enjoy each other's company quietly. I'll never forget one time Eric and I went on a trip. We were going to a conference down in Georgia. It was the Catalyst Conference, and it was just the two of us, he was driving. And we're just cruising down the road, and I don't know. It's like a 10-hour drive, I think, and maybe four or five hours in. Eric just looks over at me, and he says, thanks for not needing to talk this whole trip. And I just looked at him, and I was like, you're welcome. <laughs> four hours, five hours, Silence. Nothing, not one word was spoken between us the whole trip almost. Why? Because we were two friends who were so comfortable with each other that we didn't have to fill the empty silence with pointless chatter. We all need that level of comfortability with someone, the friend. Now, when we think about the friendship of Jesus, I don't want to oversimplify it. I don't want to oversimplify him because he's not just any friend. Because, in fact, if you read in an earlier part in the book of Revelation, John, the apostle who wrote the book and had all these visions, right? Early in the book of Revelation, John has this this vision and and he sees this powerful depiction of Christ. I mean, it's powerful. It's so overwhelming that he falls down on the ground. Can't even stand up anymore. And he's paralyzed. He's immobilized. That's the Jesus we're talking about. 
who overwhelms you if he really showed you all of who he is. We can't even stand in his presence. But we also can't ignore his humanness and the relational desires that he said there in Revelation 3. You know, he's not waiting for you to do something special. He's already at the door. He's already knocking. Why? Because he wants to come in. He wants in so badly into your life. And all we have to do, come on in. All we got to do is accept the invitation that he places right before us. You know, a real friend not only comes after you, but also lets you come after them. And they're not afraid to share everything without holding back anything. In fact, in John 15, just before going to the cross, Jesus says in verse 15, No longer, say no longer. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. Everyone say friends. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made it known to you. Jesus considers his friends those who he shared his deepest purposes with. He doesn't keep anything from his disciples. He tells them everything. There are no secrets with Jesus. And Jesus' friends are invited to approach him, to have what he has, to know what he knows. Because Jesus, he's our friend. Say, Jesus is my friend. Jesus is my companion. Oh, I just remembered a video I could have played right here. Jesus is my friend. Oh, we'll, we'll see if we get that popped up. You're on mission, boy. Okay. So, like, what is a companion, a companion right? Well, a companion is, is, is like a friend who joins you on a journey. And as we navigate through this very vast world, we have a steady, unwavering companion and friend. And as our friend, Christ's heart is there to comfort us when we feel rejected. Who's felt rejected? He comforts us with his gentleness. And he changes our perception. Because so many times we think, Oh, he's far away. God's up there in the clouds. Jesus is up there. They're all there. They're just away from me, not close to me. But what Jesus does is he changes that perception. He addresses the sense of loneliness that we carry that helps feed this thing that God's far away. He addresses it. He speaks to our loneliness on this journey 
And the way he does it is he says, I'm with you. I'm on it with you. We're together. Every moment, every step of the way. I'm your companion. And you'll never be alone. And you know, our friendship with Jesus, it's a two-way relationship. A two-way relationship of joy. It's a two-way relationship of comfort, mutual openness. Rather than a a one-way relationship. You know, kind of like, I see all the signals. I'm getting flashes of light and... It's not one way. It's not like a master with his servant. Now, again, Christ is. He is our ruler. He is our authority. He deserves reverence. He deserves our obedience. But Jesus comes down to our level to form a friendship for both his and our mutual delight. Everyone say delight. Because we're going to be delighted as we share this little video. I just, I got, you just have to hear it. We're going to do this at church one day. I feel like this. Charlie Brown dance could go here. This is real. This is a real band. Oh, thank you. Jesus, Jesus. Jesus. Oh my goodness. I just feel the joy of the Lord right now. It's just true. I did. I knew them all. I have watched that video hundreds of times. Oh, yes, because, you know, true friendship of Jesus, it's beautiful. It brings a sense of freedom, openness, brings that to us that brings us to that place where we can actually share our secrets, our experiences with him. That's what Christ does with us. He's he's longing to create this mutual connection. Because in friendship, there's there's comfort. There's joy. And Christ takes pleasure in his love of us, the church. Just as we as the church 
We, we are in love in him, with him and we delight in him. You know, words kind of like, like mutual and one another. They, they really, truly reveal the aspects of Christ's friendship. The idea is that he is sharing with us. He's, he's sharing in our life, in our experiences. And the love and comfort that, that friends feel is also shared between us and Christ. You know, in simple terms, Jesus relates to us like a real person, because guess what? He is one. Jesus is not just an abstract idea of friendship. He's a real friend. But keep in mind that when we take hold of this friendship with Jesus, we cannot for one moment believe that we have no need of others. Because some of us like to go that way. Oh, I'm tight with Jesus. We're so close. I don't I need anyone. Nope. Being friends with Christ, it will not satisfy your need of other relationships. I mean, let's think about it. Back in Genesis, right, in the garden, God made Adam. What did he say? He said, it's not good for Adam to be alone. But wasn't God with Adam? Right? Didn't God walk with Adam in the Garden of Eden? He sure did. And God still said, Adam needs others. God designed us for connection with other people. Everyone, introverts included, everyone can and does feel lonely. But Christ's love means he's, he'll always be our unwavering friend, regardless of how many friends we have on this earth. Jesus offers a friendship that is to ease the pain of loneliness. Though the ache may still be there at times, Jesus' companionship, he makes it bearable. He walks with us through every moment. He understands the pain of betrayal, but guess what? He will never betray us. His friendship, it is sweet. It is constant in every situation. Even if and when other people let us down, he won't. If we're not ashamed of him, he won't be ashamed of us. Drawing comfort from Jesus as our friend will make our lives so much more relaxed. Who needs to chill? Anyone tell you this week, take a chill pill? You need to relax. Because this friendship with him, it's a comforting, it's a fruitful and it's an everlasting friendship. Now, I said I'm talking about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So what part does the Spirit play in all of this? What is the Holy Spirit's role? What does He do? You know, there's a lot of valid biblical answers to what does the Spirit do, right? Just, I mean, there's a 
whole list of them. He regenerates us. He convicts us. He empowers us with gifts. He testifies in our hearts that we are God's children. He leads us. He makes us fruitful. He grants us and nurtures us in resurrection life. He helps us kill sin, intercedes for us when we don't know what to pray. He guides us into truth. He transforms us into the image of Christ. All these things are wonderfully true. But let's add one more. The Spirit actually makes us feel Christ's heart for me. Now, this is similar to some of the other Spirit's actions mentioned earlier, but it's important to clarify how the Holy Spirit connects to this understanding of the heart of Jesus. Because what the Holy Spirit does is He makes Christ's heart real to us. Not just heard about, not just seen on the pages of the Bible. Not just seen on the pages of the Bible, but actually felt. And not just felt, but enjoyed. You see, the Spirit takes what we read in the Bible and believe about Jesus' heart on paper, and He moves it from an idea to a reality. He takes it from a theory, a message that I heard on Sunday, to an actual experience. I mean, imagine being a child and hearing your father tell you that he loves you. Right? As a kid, we believe it. We take his word for it. However, it is a whole complete other other deal, a much more real experience when he comes up and he hugs us. We're embraced by dad. We feel the warmth of his hug. We have our head to his chest and we can hear his heart beating. And we instantly know we are in the protective hug of the arms of my dad. Hearing about love is one thing. But feeling it, whole other deal. And this is the amazing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You know, in John chapters 14 through 16, Jesus explains the Spirit's work as an extension of His own. In fact, He says that when He leaves, when Jesus leaves, and the Spirit comes, it's going to be even better. It'll be more superior blessing to his people. In fact, let's read this passage. And and I want you to pay close attention to Jesus' explanation as he makes this point in John 16. He says, but now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asks, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage. Say, it's to my advantage. That Jesus go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, why is that an advantage? Why is it an advantage for the Spirit to come? Well, I think part of the natural understanding is that he's going to fix something that's not right. And what's not right? Well, 
It says it. Sorrow has filled your heart. Verse 6. See, it seems that the Spirit's coming will do the opposite of this sorrow. He's going to fill their hearts with joy. The Spirit of God replaces sorrow with joy. We got a song we sing, I'm trading my sorrows for the joy of the Lord. You see, the disciples, they were sad because Jesus was leaving them. Right? The guy who is just oozes with love and acceptance more perfectly than anyone they've ever experienced nor ever will. He's leaving. And they thought that when Jesus leaves, guess what? So does his embrace. So did his love. All the love we felt from this beautiful man, it's gone. He's taking it with him. But Jesus says, oh, don't worry. The Spirit's the solution. See, the Spirit continues the heart of Christ for his people. After Jesus has gone to heaven, see, the Holy Spirit will, will be the new comforter. He will be the continual revealer of Christ's heart for me. Have you thought about how the Holy Spirit works in this specific way? Remember, the Spirit is a person, right? In fact, He's a person that can be grieved. I mean, passages like Isaiah 63, verse 10, and Ephesians 4.30 talk about this. How would it be if we actually treated the Holy Spirit like He was an actual person in our daily lives? What could it look like to open our hearts and truly, through the Spirit of God, truly feel the love of Christ? The Spirit helps us understand and feel Christ's loving heart more accurately, more personally, more tangibly. In fact, Jesus, you know, we, I shared a while ago, many weeks, months. Jesus says this about his own heart. He says what? He says in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. And that is a beautiful statement that anyone could appreciate. Anyone could be amazed by, even without the help of the Spirit. However, the Spirit takes these words of Christ and He makes them personal. He brings it down to an individual level, your individual level. The Spirit turns the idea into an actual, real taste and see that the Lord is good. Everything we see and we hear about Jesus' gracious heart during this time on earth, it becomes a living reality in the heart of us, his people, after he goes to heaven. In fact, when Paul says in Galatians, he talks about how the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me makes that statement. He expresses something that no one could say without the Holy Spirit. 
This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 2 says that we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. To grasp the Holy Spirit's role in this context, it's important that we understand that this Greek word for understand, which is oida, doesn't only refer to, refer to like an intellectual understanding, right? I, I comprehend it. Kind of like when Brian was up here doing, you know, uh, missionary math, and I was going, uh, he lost me, I was struggling. I was like, 1,300 to 15 equals two times what? And I'm, I don't, I, I couldn't keep up. It's too early. I don't like math. Let's just say it, okay? So this understood, though, it's not like I, 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 I Intellectual understanding. It means to know. And in the Bible, knowing something is a holistic concept. It's not just an intellectual understanding. In the Bible, knowing is it's, it's an experiential knowing. It's kind of like knowing that the sun is warm when you are outside on a sunny day in July. Don't we all wish that's where we were now? Yes. Let's just take a moment and imagine. We're all on the beach. Oh. All, yeah. Charlene, I don't know if that bathing suit's appropriate, but I'm going to not look that way. So anyway, we're back on the beach. Oh, Jesus. I know it's warm. I know Charlene needs a cover-up. It's okay. I'm joking. I'm joking. You would never do that. That's the kind of knowing we're talking about here. Paul is saying that the Spirit has been given to us so that we might deeply know, deeply experience the endless grace of God's heart. And that word, that term freely given in this text is the verb form of charizomai which comes from the common Greek word grace, which is charis. See, the Spirit delights in awakening and calming and soothing us with the heart knowledge of the grace that we have received from God. See, the Spirit's role is to transform our basic understanding of Christ's great heart of affection. To transform it and take it into an actual experience. Like again, let's go back to the beach. We're on the beach, sitting in a chair, cold drink in hand. Just enjoying the moment. This is what the Spirit does with the love of Christ. He does this clearly and assuredly when we get saved. But he continues to do it countless times as we navigate through our sin, through our folly, through our boredom that slowly tries to drift us away from the felt experience of Jesus' heart. That's the Holy Spirit. Now the Father. E.W. Tozer, he wrote in a book, in the knowledge of the holy, he writes, he says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. 
You see, we're all on a journey. Me included, you. We're all on a journey of shifting our mental image of God from being distant to fully knowing that Jesus is near us and that Jesus is gentle and lowly in his heart. You know, I've talked a lot about the Son of God, spoke about the Holy Spirit, but what about the Father? What, what, what do we think about him? Like, should we see uh, Jesus <clears throat> as gentle and lowly, but we should see the Father differently? You know, in traditional Protestant atonement theology, it is uh, widely accepted that the Son's work on the cross vindicated God's justice and satisfied His wrath. Christ's life, death, and resurrection, however, were not primarily a moral example, though it was. It wasn't primarily a triumphant uh, over uh, winning and beating Satan, taking the keys, although he did that. It's not primarily even a demonstration of love. The son's work, especially in his death and resurrection, supremely satisfied the father's righteous wrath due to my rebellion and your rebellion. His wrath was propitiated. Let's say that word, propitiated. Yeah, it's a great big Bible word that means to turn away or appease something. So, does this mean that Jesus saved us from the Father? Hmm. Does the Father have a different opinion or attitude towards us? Well, the short answer is no. See, the Father's attitude towards His people is not different than that of Jesus. Now, some Christians may think that for some, you know, to some extent, they may think that the Father is maybe less inclined to love and forgive as Jesus is. However, this is not what the Bible teaches. So how do we reconcile the idea that the Father had wrath to be satisfied and the Son did the work to provide that satisfaction? Does this suggest a different stance towards us from the Father compared to the Son? Well, here's the key. See, we've got to recognize that our sin, which is rebellion against God, made us legally guilty in the court of heaven. That meant that the only right and just way to handle this rebellion was your death for eternity. The Father's wrath against sin needed to be appeased for sinners, that's you, that's me, to be restored to his favor. That's all on the legal level. However, at the level of God's heart, at the level of the Father's desire, the, the Father's affection, he was just as eager as the Son for this atonement to happen. See, objectively, the punishment needed to be satisfied. But subjectively, the Father's heart 
was completely aligned with the Son. It is a mistake to draw conclusions about who the Father is subjectively based on what needed to legally happen objectively. See, the Father and the Son, they're together. In fact, we're told that they agreed in eternity past to redeem us as sinful people. And guess what? The Father didn't need more persuasion than the Son. Come on, Dad, I think it's worth it. No, they're terrible. I can't wait to kill them all. Yeah, but, but Dad, I'm, I'm going to be one of them. And... Nope. That is not what happened. On the contrary, the Father's establishing of the way of redemption actually reflects the same loving heart as the Son's accomplishment of it. You know, there's, in fact, a lot of Old Testament passages that describe God in ways similar to Jesus' statement in the New Testament that He is gentle and lowly in heart. Now, for today, we're just going to focus on what the New Testament says. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 1.3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Now, when Paul refers to God as the Father of mercies, he provides us, he gives us this insight into what's coming into his mind when he thinks about God. Right? This is how Paul thinks about God. And while the Father is just and He is righteous consistently, what defines His heart? What radiates from His deepest being? What does the Father's heart produce? Well, the answer is mercies. Everyone's saying mercies. He is the Father of mercies. You know, just like as a, uh, a natural father, like myself, has children, most of the time, many of the times, those children reflect my character, my values. And so the Heavenly Father, He has that too with mercies. See, all of His mercies look just like Him. Those mercies, they all reflect His character. There's a family resemblance between the Father and mercy. Now, this word mercies, which is oiktiermon, appears only five times in the New Testament. And in James 5.11, it is used alongside uh, divine compassion, right? It says, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've even seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate, which is this word, Paulus Splachnoso, or yeah, Paulus Splachnos, and he's merciful, Oiktirman. Now, you may remember, I doubt it, but you may remember months ago when I was talking about teaching, preaching about that Jesus' uh, deepest compassion is expressed in that word, in this root word, Splachnoso. Uh, it's also found in James 5.11 as compassionate. That's what the word is. Now here, it carries this added prefix of, of polu, which means much or greatly. 
So according to James 5.11, the Lord is much compassionate. Say much compassionate. And is greatly compassionate. Say greatly compassionate. That these things are synonymous. This nature of God is synonymous with being merciful. Referring to God the Father as the Father of mercies means that He abundantly multiplies compassionate mercies to us, His needy, His wayward, His messy, His fallen, sometimes wandering people. See, Father of mercies, it allows the Bible to lead us, lead us into the deepest aspects of who God the Father actually is. The correct understanding of the triune God does not depict a father who's judgmental and a son who's so loving. They both share the same heart. After all, they're one God, right? Not two. Their shared heart is one of redeeming love, satisfying justice, satisfying wrath in a beautiful harmony. And God as Father, the Father of mercies, it means that God possesses a multitude of various mercies. Now, here's what that means. That for every ugly, disgusting sin found in our hearts, or caused by the devil, it, each one has its own special and overcoming mercy. Just as our hearts and the devil bring out various sins, God's heart is the source of every kind of mercy for every kind of sin. Each one, each mercy that he gives us, it's tailored to address your very specific sin. The Father has this treasury of mercies and it shows up all throughout Scripture. All of the promises of Scripture. And when we bathe ourselves in the Word of God, that means we read it, we think about it, we keep it here, we talk about it with others. When we take a bath in it, it's like going into a shop and it's like finding a different mercy. Oh, I, I, I need this one. I don't have this one yet. Different mercy for any and every sin that comes into our lives. Can you say amen? amen. Because if your heart's hard, His mercies are tender. If your heart's dead, His mercies bring life. If you're sick, His mercy is here to heal you. If you're sinful, His mercies will sanctify and cleanse you. No matter what our needs are, no matter how many we have, God's mercies are equally extensive and as varied as we need. We can confidently seek grace and mercy in our times of need. You and I, we can find a specific mercy for every requirement we have in life. All the mercies within God's heart are planted like, like in like different beds of flowers in a garden. 
Every of these mercies are planted in these gardens of promise. And they're flourishing with abundant varieties. Oh, look at this. I've never seen this. This is a beautiful mercy. Look how it sprung up. They're tailored to address all of the struggles of our soul. And when we think about God, we should picture the triune God, a unity of three in one, as a source of boundless mercies that reach and meet and abundantly provide for us in all of our needs, all of my shortcomings, every doubt that I've had, and every sin. This contains the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, where each one is no less merciful than the other. And even beyond what we are aware of right now, the Father's tender care, it surrounds us with gentle guidance, and it's governing every detail of our lives. In all the things that unfold in our lives, whether it's big stuff, big things, or little things, small things, the heart of the Father is in everything. So who is God the Father? Well, he's precisely that. He's our Father. Now, some of us, we may have experienced wonderful fathers, Probably too many of us have suffered from our Father. Suffered mistreatment, maybe abandonment. But regardless of how good your dad was, it was just the smallest, tiniest fraction of the true goodness of our Heavenly Father. And the other's true as well. Every shortcoming... Every fault and failure of your earthly dad, it is the exact opposite of who our Heavenly Father is. Because He is a good, good Father. You know, in John 14, Philip says to Jesus, He says, Show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father's in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. You know, in other parts of the New Testament, Christ is called the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus embodies who God is, and he serves as an actual tangible representation of who the Father is. Jesus Christ is the visible form of the unseen God. You know, in the Gospels, we witness the very tenderness and compassion of God when we see Jesus. When we think about the Father's heart for us, remember that He is the Father of mercies. He's not hesitant in His tenderness towards us. He provides mercies tailored to our every need. And guess what? It brings Him delight 
He's not burdened by it. Oh, I got to come up with more mercies for Tom. Wow, I didn't think he could come up with that one. <laughs> Holy moly. Jesus, did you see that coming? No, Dad, I didn't see it. All right, what are we going to do? No. He's like, I know. <laughs> I, I knew it was going to happen. I love you. I love you, kid. Here's what you need. Everything. We've got to know that this God who created everyone and everything, he is your father. And he's much more tender with you than you are or you could be with yourself. Your kindest treatment of yourself falls so short of the gentleness with which your heavenly father cares about you. His tenderness exceeds what you can even think about extending to yourself. The heart of Christ is gentle and it's humble. It's offering a perfect image of the Father. John 16, 27, for the Father himself loves you. Just close your eyes for a moment. I want you to say that to yourself. Say, the Father himself loves me. The Father himself loves me. Maybe you're here today and you've never experienced this that I'm talking about. Maybe you've never, ever felt the tender mercies of Christ. Maybe you don't even know him as your Savior. You've never asked him as Lord in your life. Today is the day we're going to change that for you. Today is the day you get to turn around and see your dad in heaven the way he really is through the life of Jesus. So with everybody's eyes closed, if you would, if you're here today and you need to be saved, you need this tender mercy, you need this friendship to break off the loneliness that your heart has felt. If you need Christ as your Lord and Savior today, I just need you to raise your hand so I can see it. Just put it up real high and I can see that hand. Or maybe you're here and you feel like you've walked away from God a long time ago, but maybe I need to come back. I don't know. He may, he may not like me when I come back, like the prodigal son thought. Well, guess what the father did in that story? He came running. He came running for that prodigal son. If you're here today, you knew God but you feel like you walked away, but you want to come right back. You want to meet him on the road. I want you to raise your hand so I can see it. Amen. Well, if everybody would just pray with me right now, just say, Father in heaven, I thank you for Jesus that the two of you agreed on my salvation that you both love me, that you both have mercy, that you are tender and compassionate towards me. So today, God, I accept Jesus as my Savior, and I pray in this moment that the beautiful Holy Spirit would fill me now from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. 
I receive your salvation. Jesus is the Son of God, and He died for my sins, and I accept that gift today in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, if you're here, and there is a brokenness around Father the revelation of the Father, the, the work of the Holy Spirit, the love of friendship of Christ. If you're here and that's you, I just I want you just to right now, I just want you to go to the, the Father in your mind right now. Ask, in fact, why don't you ask Jesus if he will take you to the Father right now? Chris, if you would put on just a little bit of light music, please. I want you to ask Jesus to take you to the Father right now. What's going on? I want you to be very aware. What's going on? What is Jesus saying? What's he doing? What's the Father saying or doing? Let this healing moment just wash over you. Holy Spirit, I want you to come right now and let us feel this love of the Father. Holy Spirit, I want you to come and, and pour out the mercy that we need to heal our Father image. God, we ask you to heal our, our, the abuse that we suffered from our dads. Bring healing now in Jesus' name. Deliver us from evil. Thank you, God. Just feel like I want to remind you that this issue of our image and understanding of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is the most important thing in our lives. And if today, even after we prayed, and you're still struggling, you need to sign up for some emotional healing where you can get some very specific ministry addressing your father issues, your mother issues, maybe your sibling or friendship issue. You can sign up on our website or you can talk to my wife, Michelle. So, Father, I thank you for the work that you're doing, that you are revealing yourself in beautiful ways today. And I thank you for the tender mercies that are available to us for everything in every season and every moment. Jesus, we thank you that you're a friend and a companion, that you walk with us, that you are with us. 
Uh, You show us what friendship is all about so that we can be friends to others and receive their friendship. God, heal the broken relationships in this house. Husbands and wives, friends with friends, brothers and sisters, heal these things. Let the love of Jesus heal these things. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you make it all real. You make it all real. So we love you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for your friendship, for your love, for your mercy. I ask that you would continue to do a great and powerful work in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen.